Hello and welcome to the SIPSI hashtag build to perform podcast. This month we'll be talking about indoor air quality. What is it? Why does it matter? And what can you do about it? We'll be speaking to Alan Fogarty at Cundle about what they've done to improve their air quality. But first, let's hear from Julie Godefroy, an independent sustainability consultant who I caught up with at a busy building centre in London. Um, it's important to us as engineers because um, obviously we're in charge of very largely with the architects bringing air into buildings. Mm. So a lot of the issues related to outdoor quality now are very much transport related, mm. which say SIBSI members may not have that much to do with. But then, because outdoor air is often poor in urban areas, we have, I think, a duty and actually a regulatory obligation mm. to check um, what we bring indoors. And there is a sort of relationship between outdoor and indoor air quality, they're not completely separate at all? Yeah, no, not at all. Um, so obviously we bring air from the outside and it will vary um, quite a lot depending on where your air inlets are, mm. i.e. right close to the door, near your neighbour's outlet or um, in quite a nice fresh area. Yeah. What does happen is that we also have indoor sources of pollution, i.e people, um, pets, uh, which can create sources of allergy, um, as well as volatile organic compounds from products, furnishes, uh, paints. So it, it's a mix really, and some of the pollutants degrade over time, some just stay there. So if we've brought them into the building, they're going to stay unless we ingest them and they stay in our lungs. So, talking about ingesting and staying in the lungs, what kind of what kind of problem is it? What what's the effect on people? Do you say? So the way it's been described, for example, Royal College of Physicians, is that it's a major public health problem, mm. and in particular when we talk about NOx and particulate matters, mm. especially the ones of the small size, be below ten micron diameter, because um, they are typically not filtered through our nose and. They are a, they're small enough to go into our lungs and once they're there, as far as I understand, they stay. Yeah. So it creates actually quite long-term problems in cardiovascular in particular, mm. um, as well as you know, just general annoyance and sneezing if you're a cyclist. Um, so as engineers then, what part do you have to play in, in, in making indoor air quality better? I mean, obviously there's not much you can do about the outside generally, especially if you're a sort of building services engineer sort of stuff, can you do? So I think we actually can do some things. Um, so more and more CBZ members and engineers widely are involved in infrastructure. So there's, for example, the resilient cities and green infrastructure groups mm. at CBZ, and we can start to be involved in yeah green infrastructure I guess is one and planning of streets right. so there's more and more modeling on wind dispersion mm -hmm. for example um, and obviously we are also partially responsible for outdoor air quality when we specify combustion plants okay. boilers CHP biomass boilers sometimes sure but it's true that a lot of our impact is about what we do indoors so the first thing to think about is where we take the air from. We do still see buildings with air inlets on roads mm. or air inlets that are located next to other sources of outdoor air pollution. We should obviously try to um, minimize these cases and be quite open to clients about 
why it is that potentially we're taking a longer and or more expensive route mm. for our designs. By the way, SIBZ does have guidance in itself and in reference to British standards about the levels of filtration mm. that can be applied. We also have a responsibility, as with every piece of our design, to make sure that if we have, for example, put a filter in our handling units, mm. the future owners and managers know about it, right. because that very often doesn't happen, as we know. So filters don't get changed, uh, they are often not easily accessible, mm. so they have a reduced efficiency over time. It's true in non-domestic buildings, but also in domestic buildings with MVHR. Mm. Other things that we can do is CO2 monitoring, which is often used as a proxy for general air quality. Right. Um, that's more and more common in large office developments and appropriate ventilation rates. SIBZ actually has quite clear guidance on minimum ventilation rates which align with Part F, but you can go further mm -hmm. and the British standards actually define um, high classes of indoor air quality where you can go further. So it's a discussion that we could have much more openly with clients right. about the level. Okay, I mean, so there's a certain amount of making clients aware, I suppose, isn't it? Because maybe people don't think about it because maybe it's not necessarily a target uh, and they don't necessarily have to do it and thus they try and avoid doing it yeah. just because it's expensive, I suppose, or more expensive yeah. than it would ordinarily be. So in terms of targets, then, what are the sort of targets and legislation in place and do, do we actually meet them? So, first of all, the government themselves don't meet their targets. Right. <laughs> so... Uh, you may be aware that there's actually a court case at the moment um, brought by lawyers called Client Earth mm. taking government to High Court again. Um, they won last year because um, government have legally binding targets from the European Union mm. about certain levels of pollutants. For other pollutants it's just objectives but for things like particulate it's legally binding and we um, as a nation regularly fail them. As, so the EU targets are translated into national plans right. which are then which, which include objectives which local authorities have to monitor mm. and then if the objectives are not met local authorities um, have to create air quality management areas. Right. So essentially it's passed down the chain and then to some extent picked up through the planning process by things such as air quality assessment. Unfortunately these are often just impact assessments. Right. So if the impact is small compared to the current rubbish situation, um, it's actually acceptable. <laughs> right. So we've talked a lot about offices thus far, and I've spoken to Alan Fogarty later on about um, his office, particularly in central London. What about residential? And it's obviously where most people live. Uh, obviously, everyone lives in a residential building because that's how it works. But um, how do how does air quality affect residential differently than it does offices? Do you think? What the RCP report, for example, pointed out is that unfortunately there's still um, social injustice right. to some extent in air quality because um, people of more deprived background will tend to live in areas with worse air quality, with fewer parks, on more busy and polluted roads. Mm. So inherently, there's already, they are already at higher risk. Um, 
in terms of new build housing, what we've also seen and, um, in the last few years is more and more talk about the risk of overheating mm. in these, uh, and for the same reasons really, because very often dwellings are on busy polluted roads. So I think what we can do is make sure that if we are going to have mechanical ventilation with heat recovery in these dwellings, sure. um, for example driven by carbon targets, we, sh we really have a duty to ensure that they also provide benefits in air quality terms. Mm. So if people rely on the MVHR units instead of opening the windows, let's make sure that at least it provides filtered air. Right. Um, so let's think again about the location of our inlets and have very, very simple explanations um, to users about the fact that they are filters and they need changing. Mm. And it would be much easier if the MVHR units were not located hidden in the ceiling where they're not very accessible. Yeah. I mean, it is interesting that you say that, actually, because it seems like there is a bit of a, a sort of conflict. It seems unfair, really, because we're working really hard to try and meet carbon targets, but also, and for public health reasons, but also that's creating another public health crisis, almost, in the sense that it's also, if people don't consider indoor air quality and the effect it's having on people's health, and the way that the building services they're installing in order to, to meet the carbon targets yeah. are affecting people, then it's, it's going to cause another problem. Yeah, and I think um, air quality, particularly in some urban locations, is a much more immediate problem. Mm. Uh, and we should design the most efficient, the most efficient products for people. Mm. So we have to think about air quality first, and then think about how that can be done. To see an example of indoor air quality principles working in practice, I head across town to St Paul's to Cundall's offices, where I met up with Alan Fogarty. Okay, so I am here now with Alan Fogarty, who is a partner at Cundall, who has been uh, working on Cundall's well-building standard here at their offices in central London. Um, first of all, can you just sort of set the scene a little bit and tell me a little about, about what Cundall have been doing with the well-building standard and what kind of changes you've been making around the place uh, to, to try and sort of meet that, that standard? Yeah, well, in the first instance, we just wanted to understand what exactly it was about. It seemed to be a kind of fairly common sense um, approach to building design. Um, specifically in terms of air quality, actually, it, it's not that demanding. Um, it references ASHRAE standards and ASHRAE standards typically are less demanding than SIBSI. Mm. So by default, the building had been designed to SIBSI standards. Um, and as a result, for the main office itself, we achieved the, the well standards because mm. of SIBSI standards. Um, one of the, the major changes in relation to that part of it was actually removing printers and um, photocopiers from the office area. They had to be uh, enclosed in its own particular room with extracts, mm. so that's what we've done. Um, and people say they've noticed the difference, mm. um, which is good. Um, besides that, the meeting rooms themselves, because they had the potential for high density occupation, um, we had to introduce variable volume air. Nothing to do with energy, it's all about getting the available air to where it's needed the sure. most. And what we've been, well, the, the target in terms of air quality was defined by the uh, CO2 levels and we needed to get to 800 parts per million. Mm. And to be perfectly honest, um, 
we probably would have done that anyway because when we looked at the air volumes available in the actual riser itself, it wasn't sufficient for the numbers of people that would be in the rooms. Right. So regardless of whether well had required it or not, we would have um, probably have put it in. So, I mean, every little helps, I think, I guess, is what you're saying, really, because even small companies that, you know, maybe haven't got the kind of diagnostic equipment that you'd need to do some, you know, the most advanced kind of monitoring, but, you know, even having a phone will allow you to do enough to make your building slightly better. Absolutely. You can get sensors now kind of 100 to 200 pounds, so they're affordable pretty much for any business. Mm. And it's not so much, they, they aren't necessarily calibrated, but... It, it's the relative differences. When you see something change, mm. then you know something's happened. Either the monitor has broken, or you know, <laughs> well, yes. or, or else something's happened in the space. But at least it, it it creates a question mark, and then you go in and look and see what's actually happened. I was going to mention that actually because that's one of the sort of many quite sophisticated systems you're operating here. What kind of things? I mean, for a start, uh, if you look in September's journal, you'll see that you've uh, written an article in there specifically about the World Building Standard, which actually does cover um, air quality. And obviously you're speaking at the conference um, in November as well. What kind of systems have you got here? And what, what kind of things are you doing to try and improve indoor air quality? Well, the system is relatively simple. It's a VAB box effectively that's just controlling the air within the spaces and there's a hierarchy controlled by CO2 sensors in the space. Mm. So the, the boardroom gets first dibs on the air <laughs> and then next largest one which is going to be called a client meeting room which we're more, more likely to bring clients to mm -hmm. and then these three rooms are smaller. This, this, this one, the acoustics next door and another one. And um, this particular room gets last priority because it's got the plants in it mm. so it can withstand lower we are surrounded by a large number of plants i might say it's it's uh, quite startling actually i mean if you've seen the pictures of the journal it's it's really quite something but um you say they make quite a lot of difference have uh, you've spoken to me earlier about it yes well you know i would say conservatively with the plants in the room we can reduce the um the amount of ventilation air by around 10 percent and as I said earlier, we're convinced that different plants have different performances, so to speak. Mm. And we're going to be checking that to see which plants are more likely to give us better air quality. Um, it's not just a case of you know indoor plants that can tolerate low levels of light. You might find ones that are more suitable for outdoor, but because they are used to outdoor and have high levels of light, they actually produce far more oxygen, taking in far more CO2 when you give them the high levels of light. So it's a, it's a process that we're, we're going through. But in terms of technology, um, like most of the time, and certainly in, on the main floor plate here, it's a very standard VAB design. It's a, VAB design, it's a fan coil design, and it has constant volume air going to the back of fan coils. And the fan coil itself will have DC motors, so it can be variable volume on the fan coil, which means that the only thing that's actually fixed is the, the fresh air which I think is a lost opportunity. And one of my colleagues is working through with a fan coil manufacturer to integrate the actual uh, a, a VAV valve on the back of the, within the fan coil itself. So mm. you duct up to the fan coil as you, uh, more or less as you normally would, but you actually make the connection. Mm. And then you have a valve that is basically controlling the air into the space based on CO2 sensing. So suddenly you have a system that is responding completely to occupancy and you then can have the air following the people around the office. So they go into meeting rooms and it tilts it down in one part and picks it up somewhere else. So you're getting good air quality, but you're saving plenty of energy as well, which I think is the future. I'm sensing this is very sort of occupant-led then. It's, it's much more focused on the requirements of the people in the building rather than the building itself. 
Oh, very much so. And, yeah. you know, wh why have loads and loads of air going to a building doing nothing? Exactly. Yeah. You know, it, it should be um, just literally re responding to the needs of the people. And equally then, you could very easily say, right, well, you know, some people want more fresh air. Well, give them more fresh air. Mm -hmm. But they, they only get it when they need it. So you're not having a huge energy penalty. Right. And so is that more or less how you would see yourself tackling the problem of it being, you know, not very good for energy efficiency if you've got... Very much so. Um, because, you know, yourself, you look at any office any given time, there's people at me in meetings outside or in their own spaces, or they might just wander off and, you know, you see some people sitting there on some of the benches in our canteen area just because it's a more pleasant environment. Mm -hmm. That means that the need for fresh air down in the main office drops off dramatically and um, we should be taking advantage of that. It's just, it's common sense. So... Uh, Right now, obviously, it's got, got a very sort of sophisticated system here, lots of diagnostics available. If you were a, a much smaller company, maybe like a one-man band or, or two or three people, how would you go about trying to replicate something like this? Because obviously you might not have the resources to, to retrofit anything to, to, to do this, but maybe you, know, you could make small changes. What sort of things would you suggest? Well, the, the monitoring side of things is, is terribly simple, and there's lots of um, companies out there producing this technology um, and it's the doubt coming down in price, like, but it's not expensive now. You can get some of these things for you know in the range of one to two hundred pounds, um, which is well in the range of any business. And I feel that by looking at this stuff, then you you simply learn from what's happened. Mm. And um, I, w I would say if people start looking at what happens around them in their own offices, then they will gain a greater understanding of what is happening in the buildings that they're designing and don't choose arbitrary type design uh, criteria. Have a think about what the occupant will actually be doing in the space. It, it may not change anything that you do, but at least it kind of brings you into a thought process that is more likely to cause change. Mm. Um, I, I don't think we're any real different from any other business in terms of, you know, approach to these things. Clients want us effectively to look at the minimum standards in the first instance, and mm. some don't want to go beyond minimum standards, some have their own standards. But at least if we've looked at these things in more detail, we're better able to advise on what is the, the right approach. Do you agree uh, that it's sort of small gains that you're making? Because I see, I noticed that if you look at the sort of standards themselves, you can see that there are all kinds of really specific things, like the distance between the top of the tap and the basin in terms of spreading germs and the materials that things are made out of, that kind of thing. Yeah. Is it, would it, is it smaller gains that are making the difference, or are there larger ones as well that you... That well, you... a lot of those things are kind of hard to measure, and people don't even notice them. Like, the kind of um, the, the brass top, in the kitchen is antibacterial, yes. so it, it doesn't actually indicate anything is happening. It looks really nice, and as it gets older, it gets darker, and it'd be just very pleasant and warm and so on. But the fact that it's actually reducing any kind of cross-contamination is a good thing, but you don't notice these things. Mm -hmm. And the other aspect, which I which struck me too, is, um, and we're all guilty about this, every, every engineer, is that we design to CIVSI standards or ASHRAE standards, and the assumption is that that gives you comfort. Well, we had situations where the systems were absolutely dumping cold air on us, mm. and it was freezing. We went outside to warm up recently. I mean, it was just nothing. <laughs> yes, I can tell. And um, yeah, there's, there's loads of buildings where the systems don't work properly afterwards. 
And it's not that they necessarily been badly designed, it's just they aren't necessarily operated properly. The facilities guys don't understand it. And we all know this. Mm. Uh, even here, the, the return air path of the fan coils wasn't correct. Right. And we had to open up certain ceiling tiles to provide that air, air path. We, we didn't do the fan coils actually. Right. <laughs> it was a landlord system. But, you know, it, I'm sure this happens everywhere. And you, you just learn what is actually the right way of doing things. Thanks very much to Alan Fogarty of Cundall. And just a reminder, you can see him on the first day of Sipsi's conference, the 17th of November, where he'll be going into much more detail about the work they've done at Cundall. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for this week, but please do check out the Twitter feed at hashtag build to perform for more news and info. Goodbye, and see you next month.